0: Earlier this week, I was uh, driving on a uh, highway in St. Louis. Uh, some might refer to it as Interstate 64, but from what I gather, those who are from St. Louis call it Forty Highway, right? It's always going to be Forty Highway. If you're really from St. Louis, it's more like Forty Highway. It's kind of how they say it, um, but I've kind of kind of gotten used to it. I was on that highway, and I was coming back home, and was approaching the Clarkson Road exit, and there was traffic all the way up the exit ramp, backed up into the highway, you know, into that turn lane, and you've probably seen that happen. It doesn't, uh, that happens on, on occasion, and so I was uh, in line there in the exit ramp, and I heard a couple cars behind me, some some honking. I mean, it was really, really uh, aggressive honking, and I, I checked my rearview mirror and, and saw a little SUV that was swerving out from some traffic that had backed up to the highway, and boy, this guy, was he'd, he'd, he'd slammed on his brakes, he honked his horn, he's going around the car, and I'm, I'm watching all of it transpire. He gets up closer to the guy, and, and he just gives him this vulgar gesture with his hand, okay? That's all I'll say about it, but it just was very unkind and hateful, right? And uh, the guy's going on to the road, and I just watch him, and sure enough, I just happened to look in the back of his back window. Yeah, you know where this is going, don't you? (laughs) And what did he have? But he had a bumper sticker that said, can you guess? Yeah, 99.1 Joy FM, right? And I was like, oh, great, you know? Now, Thankfully, it wasn't a fellowship of Wildwood sticker in the back, right? I mean, I, I might have had to follow the guy and have a conversation about that one, but uh, it just struck me, and I thought, man, this is so unfortunate, you know, that uh, that someone professing Christ with on his vehicle would would take such an approach to uh, to another person, and I I thought about it some, you know, I thought, well, you know, what does it say to a, to community when a believer responds in such a way? And I thought, well, you know. Maybe he wasn't a believer. Maybe he's driving his wife's car, right? Maybe she's the one that put the sticker on there. Or or maybe he bought the car used and it was the previous owner that had had a sticker up there, right? But the more I thought about it, I thought, you know what? Is it possible that someone who is a follower of Christ with a Joy FM bumper sticker on the back of their car just might do something like that? And what do you think the answer is? Yeah, it's possible. I've lived long enough, and I've, I've pastored long enough to know that any of us, any of us, even as Christians, are capable of doing anything, and that's part of the struggle of, of, of still wanting to live for Christ and yet battling temptation and battling sin, and so we're, we're going to think about that this morning. Uh, we know it's disappointing when we see uh, believers, professing believers, acting in these ways, uh, but we know it's possible. Is it unfortunate? Yes, it is unfortunate. But yet we know that this brings about a lot of questions. So let me ask you this morning, what comes to mind when you see a fellow believer sin? Or what comes to mind when it's us who is the one who is sinning? What comes to mind when you when you see that the that the that the behavior or the words the actions don't match the profession? What does that bring about in your own mind? How do you process that? How do you work through that inconsistency? Whether it's a temper with hateful words and actions, maybe it's gospel, uh, uh, it's gossip or slander, maybe it's selfishness or pride or sexual sin. It's possible. For Christians to commit these sins, but when it does, when that does happen, it raises some questions, and how we respond to these questions is really what this series that we're looking at is all about. The series, without a doubt, is a series about assurance. How do we know that we know? What is the what is the the uh, the evidence that's out there that can give us assurance that our faith in Christ? is authentic. And we know that we struggle with sin. We know that we continue to sin even if we've been saved from it. So how do we process this? So this morning, as we look to 1 John, I invite your attention there as we continue this series. And we begin by asking some questions. When a Christian sins, it raises these questions. What is our attitude towards the sin? Is it a, is it a quick repentance Is it confession? Is it a a seeking to turn away from it? Or do we try to justify the sin? Do we try to excuse it or or downplay it or just redefine it so that it doesn't seem so bad? Another question, is it a pattern? Is it a lifestyle of rebellion against God? Could unrepentant, continual patterns of sin demonstrate a heart that was really not saved in the first place. Like, whoa, those are deep questions, aren't they? Well, they are. But thankfully, the book of First John was written to give us some traction in these questions, to give us some answers. And so as we look at 1 John this morning, uh, we're going to see that it deals with one's attitude towards sin. And as we work through the, pr- the, the passage, it can do one of two things. It could give us assurance that our attitude towards sin is is giving us an assurance that the gospel is at work, that Christ is at work in our lives, that His Spirit is is at work in the way that we view it. Or it could expose some things in our lives where we say, you know, this is new for me. This way to approach sin and to look at it is new, and I, I I need to be rescued by what Christ provides. And so God's Word will do His work today. It will help us as we wrestle through these questions for ourselves and and maybe as we seek to assist others because we know, as we said last week, that at at some point in one's spiritual journey, there is a time typically that comes up where one struggles with the authenticity of their faith. And that's the theme of 1 John. I won't go through the entire introduction. We did that last week. We talked about the book, the author, the audience. But let me give you that theme verse again. 1 John 5.13. It says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, folks, isn't that good news that we don't have to live our life wondering, that we don't have to come to the end of our life questioning whether or not we have salvation? Because the verse says here that I want you to know that you have eternal life. This is what we would call assurance, Now, look at the beginning of the verse. Who is it that John is writing to? He is writing to you who believe. He's writing to believers. So he's he's saying in this verse that there can be times where we struggle in knowing whether or not our faith is authentic. So with that in mind, let's pick up in our fall series without a doubt. And let's see if we can uncover some keys this morning from God's Word that provide assurance of salvation one of these keys is how we respond to sin first John chapter 1 beginning back in verse 5 this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him if we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness we are lying and are not practicing the truth if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say, verse 8, we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all Unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We'll pick back up in chapter two in a few moments. But those verses there are very practical, and uh, because they are practical, I've I've outlined the message with some questions. I know sometimes we we get to the end of the message and have some application questions. Well, today I'd like to just give them as we go. We'll just go through application questions because the passage is so practical. The first question is this. Do you demonstrate a posture of repentance towards sin? And we see that in verses 5 through 7. This is speaking of the attitude, the posture in which one views sin in general, whether we see it, whether we recognize it. And it's interesting, if you look at verse 5, there in the middle of it, John is beginning With the character and nature of God. He is saying that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. So He's using a metaphor there to describe what aspect of God? What is He communicating about the character of God? That God is holy, that He is is free of sin, there is no darkness in Him at all. He is completely holy, He is completely righteous. And so he, he begins with that, and then he says in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we're walking in a manner that is not consistent with him, it's a problem, right? In fact, if you, if you look there, it says this word, we have fellowship with him. You remember, last week we looked at that's one of the key words in the book of 1 John, fellowship. Koinonia, it speaks of an agreement It speaks of being united in purpose. And if this is the way of the Lord, the way of light, then that is the way that we are to be in fellowship with Him, pursuing His ways. But John makes this claim. He says if with our mouth we make a claim that we're in fellowship, but then with our life we're practicing these deeds that are not consistent with His ways, that it's a problem. In fact, he uses very strong language and says that, that, in fact, when we don't practice the truth, we are lying. Now, I think that we can see that uh, uh, that in the context of this section of Scripture that, that John is recognizing, obviously, that Christians can continue to sin. I, I opened up by saying that that is still very possible for any of us. So, I think what John is speaking of here is not, not the fact that one can sin, but whether or not Sin is a, is a habitual uh, aspect of one's life. If there's a continual pattern of a particular sin that is continuing to be pursued, a willful defiance, it's almost like you could say, this is like full-scale hypocrisy, saying one thing about belief in God, but then a life that is just totally separated and apart from what God is calling one, uh, how God is calling one to live. Now, I think you could probably say to some degree we're all hypocrites, right? Because none of us are perfect. We're all sinners. We all struggle. Even though we, we can make a claim that we believe in God and want to follow Him and pursue Him, we know that we still have, have, have sin. We have struggles with temptation. But I think this passage is making a, a stronger statement than that. I think it's saying this is a this is a a willful drive against the things of God and back towards the deeds of darkness. That if that is where in which one is living, that that inconsistency is a great concern. Even if someone is making a statement with their lips, so what we're talking about here is how one approaches sin, whether or not we recognize uh, uh, that it exists and how we either uh, uh, seek to repent of it or how we uh, seek to maybe justify or embrace it. Now, last week, I mentioned this book, Assured, by Greg Gilbert. Subtitle is Discover Grace, Let Go of Guilt, and Rest in Your Salvation. Excellent book, just written, just published this year. We have some copies available in our, in our little uh, bookstore area, and... Uh, If this is something that would be of interest to you, you can pick it up. And in this book, he has a quote from a man named William Arnott. And I think this quote really summarizes the two different ways that people can approach sin. And in in doing so, we can see whether someone's walking in darkness or walking in light. Here's what he says. The difference between an unconverted and converted person is not that the one has sins and the other has none. Right, We've already established the fact that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, so we both are sinners, right? Unconverted and converted. But that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. So one is approaching the sin and saying, I cherish it. And the other's approaching the sin and saying, I hate it. Even if it's tripping me up, even if it's pulling me down, I hate it. I I don't want it. I don't desire it. So it's the attitude in which one views it that shows whether or not they're pursuing God and His light. To think of pursuing Him, it means that we, first of all, are accepting His word as authoritative because how can we define what is sin and what's not unless we have a standard for that? Now, we, we live in a world that, and in a culture that would very much like to have kind of a, a sliding scale, uh, changing uh, perspective on what is right and what is wrong. It's called relativism, right? And we see that all around us. You can give all kinds of examples. But God's Word is, is not subjective. It's, it's authoritative and objective, and it's timeless, and so so we begin by saying, okay, what does God's word say about this? What are the principles that he has given in his word that bring light to this particular behavior or this particular mindset? Now the the thing that, that, that I that I like about Psalm nineteen is that it it gives a, a perspective that David, the author, is really seeing and accepting God's word as priceless. In fact, he's even using words like your instruction, your ordinances or precepts or your commands. Now, to the modern ear, some may wince when they think commands, ordinances. We, we don't want that. We don't want those kinds of things. We want to figure it out and do our own thing. But David had a different approach. He said, no, I see that your word is authoritative, and it, and it gives direction. And God, thank you for it because I need your direction. I need your law. I need your command. And listen to Psalm 19, how after every time he speaks of God's word, even, even as an instructive, authoritative word, how, it, how he has received a blessing. Okay? So as we see each word, pick out the blessing that David is receiving. Psalm 19, verse 7, the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. Now, who here wouldn't like to experience renewal, right? That's a great, great thing to to grasp onto. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. Now, who here wouldn't like to have wisdom, right? Right? See see how the pattern goes? God's Word is great, and we receive a tremendous benefit from it. Let's keep reading. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. Is that a good word? Gladness, joy. I mean, of course, we love to to have that. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of... ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. So let me just ask you, do you see the posture that David is taking as he's approaching the Word of God? Is it clear? About five of us, I think, are seeing it today. Okay. Well, the rest of us, let's just keep digging in. Let's see if we can get it, all right? The posture. So that means to me, when I open up God's Word whether it's in the morning by myself or in a setting such as this, I'm looking at it and saying, okay, Lord, your word is true. And your word is, is filled with benefit and blessing. I, I can almost see David saying, God, your word is priceless. Thank you for this instruction. I need it. I long for it. I'm blessed by it. And so, so why am I saying all this? Because there is a direct connection to how one receives the word of God, and how one views sin, and if one is downplaying sin, or justifying sin, or explaining it away because it's something that that, uh, that really isn't a big deal, what are we doing? We're not receiving the word of God in a in a healthy way. So that's the distinction. Think of it this way: our default setting is to walk in darkness. That's how we were born, born into a world of sin, living to in the bondage of sin, which holds us back and traps us, r- realizing that there's a penalty of sin that's attached, uh, that's, that's, that's attached to us. And yet then we come and we hear God's Word. And we're given an explanation that Jesus has come and that he's come to to die for sin so that we can be set free from the bondage of sin, that we can be set free from the penalty of sin. And so we come and, and we receive Christ as Savior and everything changes at that point. No longer in bondage, no longer under the penalty, but instead being given a brand new life in a new way of of living, in a new way of thinking, and just a a new way of of approaching the world. All of this happens when when we trust in Christ. It all changes. Can I ask you, do you remember the day before Christ? And do you remember the day after you knew Him? It's almost like a timeline, right? For you, the timeline of your life, the B.C. days and the A.D. days. Do you remember that change? Again, I think maybe five of us are. Come on, guys, help me out this morning. All right, we got important stuff we got to look at here. Well, what happened to make sure that you went from B.C. to A.D.? You repented of your sin. You repented. Repentance is a strong word. It's a word that means the change of direction. That's how we oftentimes think of it. But let me give you a little fuller definition. Here it is. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. I'll say it one more time. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. And both both of those parts are, are so important to understand. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, Verse 8, you may want to write this down in your notes. Matthew 3, 8, John the Baptist is coming, and he's telling those who are listening to him to produce fruit consistent with repentance. Produce fruit consistent with repentance, so a change of mind leading to a change of action. That if we claim to have repentance, that there is fruit that's born from that. And what is that? It's evidence that one can look at its confirmation that one's faith is genuine. Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Jesus brings a message of repentance, that we aren't just to stay where we are and think like we've been thinking, but there is a change that happens, a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Paul said this in Acts chapter 17. He said that uh, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. And that makes sense because we know that all people have sinned. And so we all stand in need of salvation. One more verse that Paul is quoted in Acts chapter 26 is saying, Acts 26 verse 20, I preached that they should repent and turn to God. But look at the last part of that. Do you see it? And do works worthy of repentance. All of this, all of this is right in line with what John the Apostle is writing to us about in 1 John. They support what he's saying. To say we have fellowship with God means that we are to practice the truth. That's the new pattern of our life. Now, I didn't say it was the perfection of our life, did I, or our lives. It's the practice, though. It's that trajectory. It's that, it's that new life that we're living, not to perfection, but it is the direction. Now, let me be real clear. Practicing the truth does not earn salvation. We've got to be real clear about that. Because practicing the truth is doing the truth. It's doing the work that God's called us to. And if we were to say that that earned salvation, we would then say that salvation was based upon good works that we've done. And we know the Bible says that's not what salvation is based upon. Salvation is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that's been attributed to those who have believed in him. And repentance is a sign of that belief. So it's confirming. Remember the speedometer last week? It's the speedometer, not the accelerator. It's something that confirms what's happening. It's not causing the salvation to happen. An agreement with God about what He says is sin and walking in the light. It's a posture of repentance. And so what do we do with all this? What we do is when when we recognize that we're being hold into sin, that we don't, just, we don't just try to excuse it. We want to fight against it. And yeah, maybe it's one that we fought against over and over, and we still are struggling, and we still fall, but we don't give up on it. We don't give up on the fight. We continue to pursue the light. We pray. We ask God to help. We reach out to others. In fact, I'm so glad there's a, a, a group meeting tonight for the first time this fall at 5 o'clock, and it's a group of men that have said, we know that pornography is a, is, a, is a sin that is infecting the men of our nation. And if we get real honest, we know that it is affecting the men of our church as well. Statistics tell us this. And so there's a group of men that have said, okay, we've struggled. We've we found some tools that help. And we're going to come together, and we're going, to, we're going to fight against this sin. We're not just going to give up and let it master us. We're going to press back on it. Now, let me ask you, church, is that a good thing? Absolutely. And it's evidence that, there's, that the Holy Spirit is drawing them to the light, and they're going, to, they're going to fight, and they're going to work. They're not going to give up. And So God bless these guys that are, that are bold enough to, to, to put a group like this together so happy, so proud of all the groups that are, that are meeting on Sunday, Sunday evening at 5. There's a lot of ministry happening during that time for a lot of different reasons, a lot of different ways. But here's the question. I know I've got to keep moving here. Next question is this. Have you forsaken what Christ has forbidden? That's evidence. If, if, if Christ has forbidden it, if it's something that He died for, we need to forsake it and fight against it, not just accept it. John says in 1 John 2, the one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Another strong verse there. Jesus even said in Luke 6, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? He's, again, pointing out this same inconsistency that John's pointed out. Now, back in 2011, the research group Barna did a a, a poll in America. And wanted to determine how many Americans would would agree with the statement that they had prayed a prayer of confession. Sometimes we call this like a sinner's prayer. And according to the 2011, I know it's a little dated, but eight years ago, this survey, 50% of Americans said, Yes, I have, I have prayed, prayed a prayer, some kind of prayer, uh, maybe like a sinner's prayer, a prayer of confession. But they dug a little deeper and said, well, of, the, of that 50%, how many are involved in a local church? How many are, 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 are living according to the Word of God with a worldview and a, and a perspective that's in line with the teachings of Christ? And you know what they found? Only half of them would agree to the rest of it. And so you go, wait a minute, that, that, that's a big inconsistency that there would be so many that would say, yes, I've, I've, I've made this statement even in the form of a prayer, and yet half of them not practicing the truth. What do you make about What do you make from that? How do we explain it? I can tell you what the Apostle John is explaining. What he's saying is if you say you have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, there is a disconnect. And it could mean that one's salvation was not genuine from the beginning. We've got to at least say that's a possibility. Now we don't know for sure. We certainly can't be the judge. We, we, don't, we don't know. We know that there are times where people go through seasons of disobedience, and then what happens? They still come back to the Lord, and they, they give testimony that they, were, that, they, that they were straying from the Lord, even though they knew Him, and even though they were saved. And so we understand that that can happen. There's examples of that in Scripture. But we also don't just want to assume that's what's happening. Because, as I said last week, are the stakes high on this? Are these important questions? These are eternal questions. And so it's worth looking and seeing what are these keys. And the one that we've been looking at right here is a posture of repentance, an agreement with God about Christ and His work on the cross. You know, I can say all kinds of things. I can confess all kinds of things with my lips. But it really comes out with how I live my life. And that's the the, the evidence or the proof of my belief. So, first point, do you demonstrate a posture of repentance towards sin? I know you're looking at that and you're looking and you said, wait a minute, that's the first question? Let me just say, the other two are going to go really fast, right? We're we're most of the way through, so hang with me here. Second question is this, do you take personal responsibility for sin? If you look at verse 8, it says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So what we see here is John is saying, to know God, to know the truth, is to know what? It's to know that we personally have sinned, that we are sinners. Now, one of the things about, about coming to know Christ is that that we, we 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 see the light of Christ helping us to understand our own condition. It's really a work of his grace. In fact, let me try to describe it using this metaphor. Let's say that you are in a room that is completely dark. Let's say it's a bedroom. And someone calls from the outside and says, Okay, is that room clean? And you're standing in the dark and you can't see a thing. Now, you want to project that your room is clean, so what do you say? Yeah, the room's clean. All good here. But then the person slides a match under the door. And you strike it, and you can kinda see that, that maybe maybe there are some things that are out of place. It looks like maybe the dresser's turned over and clothes are pour, pouring out the side of it. And you can see a little bit, but then then they, they 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 open the door a little bit and they they put a flashlight in. Then you're able to look around and go, Oh wow, no, it's not just the dresser, the bed's unmade, and and uh, I can I can see that the, the bin of trash over here is overflowing and, and you're beginning to see what it looks like. Well, then they, they, they slide in one of these fancy LED. Have you seen they're like these big LED bars of light? You, you turn that thing on. It's like, wow, okay, now I can see there's dust on the furniture. And, oh, look at those billboard uh, those uh, baseboards. Uh, not billboards. You don't have those in a bedroom. Baseboards <laughs> along the, uh, the uh, uh, bottom of the, of the wall there. And, it, it, boy, those haven't been cleaned. So what, what's my point? When the light comes in, what do you see? Yeah, right. You see the truth. You see the evidence that, that there is something there that's not clean. Many things. Isn't that what it's like when the grace of God comes upon us? It shows us in our own heart, in our own lives, what is out of order? What is against the, the ways and, and the will of God? And, 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 and that, that's a blessing, isn't it, to be able to see that? Wouldn't you rather get to know that information on this side of eternity? So then you're able to turn to the one who can do something about it. That's the point. That's the point. Now, some people, when they hear the gospel, they find it so offensive and they resist. And they might say, okay, I get it that I'm not perfect, but I certainly don't deserve God's wrath or judgment. Because after all, all people are really basically good, right? You've ever heard, yeah, everybody's just basically good. Well, that's not what the Bible says. That's what the American culture says. The Bible says that all people are truly sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, we are all imperfect. We all are in need of a Savior to come and forgive us of our sins and put things back in order to restore. J.D. Greer says it this way, the clearest sign that you are growing in grace is not that you no longer sin, but that you are more aware of how much sin pervades your heart. It's a sign. It's a sign that that one has come to faith in Christ by being able to recognize sin. That's what John is trying to tell us there at the end of chapter one. I'm running out of time here, so I'm going to pick up the pace, but I want to Reference one verse out of Isaiah very quickly. You remember the passage where Isaiah is given a vision of heaven? I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he sees the, 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 the beings, the angels, and those that are praising him. And what are they saying as they sing to the Lord and they speak, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, Isaiah is, is what? What does Isaiah do? He's a prophet, right? So he's one that, that knows God. Has spoken and would speak on behalf of God, but he's given this vision. And he sees, he sees that God is holy, holy, holy. There's a lot of significance in the fact that it was stated three times. But what does Isaiah see in himself in relation to what he sees in God? Look at verse five. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. And just think about that mindset. When he sees the holiness of God, he sees his need. He sees his sin. But I think in our culture today, we think that when we come close to God, that we walk away feeling better about ourselves. And that we're now poised for having this best life now. And that, that's, that's, that's not what we see from Scripture. What we see is that, that our life is messed up. That our heart is, 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 is against the things of God. And what we need is a Savior. We need forgiveness. John takes sin seriously and says that when we claim to have not sinned, We're calling God a liar. Second question, do you take personal responsibility for sin? Number three, and finally, do you live in a position of reliance in Christ's victory over sin? Look at the beginning of chapter two. Very powerful couple of verses here. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. So here we, we have a, a statement about what Christ has done for the problem of sin. And very quickly, let me point out two words. The first one is advocate. You see it there in the first verse. It's a legal term referring to someone who argues your case before the judge on your behalf, right? That's the attorney, the advocate speaking for you. If you are a Christian, Jesus is your advocate before the Father. He stands there like a lawyer pleading your case. And you might say, well, what is he arguing? Is he arguing for your innocence? Is he saying, oh, you you ought to see this guy, Ryan, When he's driving on 40 highway, he's not honking and making these gestures with his hands. So, you know, you you should, you should see that he's really basically a good guy. Is that what he's saying? No. We've already established the fact that I'm not innocent. And you're not innocent. So Jesus isn't arguing on behalf of our innocence. He is instead speaking of the work that has been done on my behalf and your behalf. That's what that second word is speaking of. Speaking of in verse 2 is the atoning sacrifice. That Jesus is saying, I gave my life. I paid the penalty for the sin already. Some versions use the word propitiation. Do you remember that word? It means that a claim against you has been satisfied. It would be like going out and causing an auto accident that was all your fault. And you were liable for the damage to the other person's car. And once you had made that payment to see that car fixed, or your insurance company did, there would no longer be a claim against you. It would have been propitiated. Jesus propitiated the holy wrath of God against our sin by suffering the full penalty in our place. That's what it says right there when it says he was the atoning sacrifice. So what the advocate is saying for us is he is saying, Father, I have paid his penalty. I have paid her penalty. And if you look at verse 9 of chapter 1, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some versions say faithful and just. Now, if the sin has been paid for, would God make it be paid for again? It'd be like fixing the person's car and then having to, to, to fix another one, right? I mean, if it's already been propitiated, it's over. And Jesus is saying, it is finished. I've paid for his sin. I've paid for her sin. There's no more penalty for this one. They're under me. That's the atoning sacrifice. That's the position of reliance that I'm speaking of. That Christ has been victorious over sin. And, folks, doesn't that lead to the assurance of salvation when we know that that Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves? When we have called upon Him to be our Savior, to stand in our place, to, to receive what we ourselves deserved, that He has done this. And when we understand it, it produces a couple of things. It produces humility, doesn't it? Because we understand that he did that because we were in need, because we are sinners. But it also produces a godly confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in the work of Christ. Think about that for a minute. One encounter with God of salvation producing both humility and confidence. Confidence in Christ. So as we think about assurance throughout this series, we want to remember that foundation we looked at last time, the work that Christ has done. In fact, in the days of the Reformation, Martin Luther used a phrase in the 1520s. I've I've shared this with you before, and it was was viewed almost like a formula. He said it in Latin, simul justus et peccator means simultaneously, that word simul, simultaneously declared righteous. See the word there? It looks like justice, doesn't it? Simultaneously declared righteous while yet still a sinner. That's us. Yes, we're sinners, but we've been declared righteous. Because the righteousness of Christ has been, has been, placed into our account. Let me close with an illustration that Greg Gilbert shared. And he has a whole chapter on besetting sins. Chapter 8. Very good. If you, if you, he has four points about how to, how to battle sin, these besetting sins that we may struggle gaining victory over. Very practical chapter. But he talks about a picture that he had up in his office at one time. And the picture, if you look at it, was a man that looked like he was made out of crystal. And his arms were stretched up to heaven, but he was being kind of swallowed up from the ground with some kind of a murky mud that was coming along and around his legs. He wasn't being swallowed up by it. He was escaping it. He was being pulled up out of it. And he says, against all odds... This man was being glorified and being made like Christ. He says, Dear Christian, the day is coming when God will extract you from the battle, remove sin once and for all from your heart, and set you on high with Christ. Until then, keep fighting, keep resisting, keep loving, and above all, keep setting your eyes on Jesus. That picture is us being pulled out. And I know it may seem like we're being pulled out slowly. Because it really is that way, isn't it? But it's coming that day. Well, think about those questions, church family. Look at each of them. Do you demonstrate a posture of repentance towards sin? Or do you have a hard heart? You see, because the opposite of repentance is rebellion. And if that's where we find ourselves, we find ourselves in need of salvation. Do you take personal responsibility for sin? Because when we do, and we're owning it, and we're pursuing God's solution, we're in a place where we're demonstrating salvation. If not, we're demonstrating pride. And the final one is, do you live in a position of reliance in Christ's victory? The opposite of that is unbelief, right? And we can find unbelief around us. The question is, do we possess it? But if you have that belief, if you have that assurance, you know that He has indeed won the victory. Let's pray together. As we bow and go to the Lord, let's respond. Let's ask the Lord to use His Word today to work in our hearts individually. Maybe this morning you have a question you'd like to know more. Maybe you're concerned about your walk with God, and there's a team called our prayer and encouragement team. They're going to be over on your left at some round tables, and they're there for you. The invitation is, if you'd like to know more about what it means to find Christ, and you want to nail this down once and for all, talk with them. Let them pray with you. Let them lead you in these scriptures, and talk through anything that you'd like. If you have any concerns or struggles, maybe your struggle isn't the assurance of salvation, but it's it's something in life that you're walking through. I'm convinced that as a church family, we need to be praying for each other. We need to be, be vessels of God's grace and encouragement to each other. And so if, if you're walking through a tough time, would you, you haven't had someone to, to talk with and pray with, would you let them have the privilege of praying with you, talking with you today? You can go to that table during this song or when the song is over. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a saving God. We thank you for your love and for your grace, for your tender mercies that meet us right where we are. And Father, as we've looked at your word today and we've looked at some very deep topics that have brought about a lot of questions, we we lay it in your hands and we ask for you to apply it to each of us. God, give us a vision of your Son, of His righteousness, Give us a picture of the the forgiveness that is found in Him. And Lord, continue to set us free from the temptations and the snares that are around us. God, may we see victory over these sins which so easily entangle. And God, may you be glorified through this. We pray for the offering that's being received. Lord, it belongs to you. We pray that you'll use it for the expansion of your kingdom and for the for the renown of your name in our community and around this world. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.